Hello, and welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and I am so excited about this conversation. Dr. Alexandra Solomon is back on the podcast. She's been here before. She is brilliant and maybe one of my favorite people in the personal development space. She's got a new book out called Love Every Day, which is a 365 relational self-awareness practices to help your relationship to heal, grow, and thrive. And in this conversation, we start in a very unexpected manner with a very surprising question and answer, which is great. And it flows from there. We talk about family systems. We talk about holding space. I ask her about what it's like to be a therapist. We talk about the people that she learns from uh, as an expert in her field. I mean, just listen to this list of names that has given testimonials and praise for her new book. Kristen Bell, Esther Perel, Lori Gottlieb, Dr. Shafali, Vienna Farron, Daniel Mate, I mean, Terry Cole, Mark Groves. And those that don't know, if you may not know, Alexandra Solomon is a professor. She is a teacher of therapists. She's been on the staff of Northwestern University. She's a licensed clinical psychologist. She has a hit podcast called Reimagining Love. She's written two books, well, three now, but her first two were called Taking Sexy Back and Loving Bravely. She's been featured on the Today Show. I mean, this woman is incredible. I highly recommend that you follow Alexandra Solomon on Instagram or Facebook. Get in her world, get in her space, buy the books. She's one of the good ones for sure. And without further ado, here is the conversation with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. I have a bit of a random first question for you, Alexandra. Mm. And uh, the question was, are you a fan of musicals? Oh, um, like Hamilton is, was the, my favorite thing I've ever seen in my whole life, probably. So I don't know that I'm yeah. a fan of musicals, but I'm a huge fan of Hamilton. Why? That's good because that was the musical I was going to ask you about mm. because I also loved that musical and that dude, Lin-Manuel Miranda is like mm-hmm. my top five. I would love to have him on the podcast. Genius. Mm. But there's, uh, a line in one of those songs and the main protagonist who is Alexander Hamilton yeah. proclaims at some point, my name is Alexander Hamilton. And he keeps saying that. And then as we were preparing for this, I thought of you and I wonder if you ever say to yourself, my name is Alexander, Alexander Sol- Solomon. Solomon. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many things I haven't done. <laughs> it even okay. Flows. So when I turned, I, I had a birthday a few years ago and my, my husband is like third generation, his mom and his grandma, their love language is for a birthday or an anniversary. They write poetry or limericks or change words to songs. Like that's just been like in Todd's family culture, like the kind of lowercase C culture, you know, it's, it's just like a family thing for three generations. And I had never, when I joined Todd's family, I was like, what is all this <laughs> poetry? And um, and it was kind of just sweet, but it was nothing I had ever seen, you know, in any, anything I'd encountered. So I had a birthday a few years ago and Todd and our kids, Brian and Courtney, um, got together and changed, well, Todd changed the words to like three different songs, like Five Rings by Ariana Grande. And then he changed all of the words to that song to make it like that. Like he did like the rap. I mean, it was about, every aspect of my life. It's a phenomenal piece of, uh, of, of wizardry that he created and just, you know, like kept the song and like played the song in the background and videoed himself and Brian and Courtney, uh, you know, doing this, like performing this, it was so incredibly touching and so off key in all of the best ways, you know, and they each had a different part, the dog, they held up the dog at one point and it was all about me. It was the sweetest thing. That's amazing. It's like a yeah. time capsule too for that moment. One day. Totally. And... Totally. We watched it not too long ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My name is Alex. Anyway. Uh, but for those <laughs> that have no idea, Alexander Solomon, this is your second time on the podcast. 
you are a therapist and a teacher of therapists and a best-selling author and a podcaster. But aside from those activities, how do you describe yourself? Like, who are you? Mm-hmm. I am, uh, well, first of all, it's so nice to be back with you. I remember, I remember our last conversation. I remember just coming, I mean, I probably couldn't tell you what the heck we talked about, but I remember just feeling like really like full inside of my heart, you know, when we were, when we were done. So I really appreciate the spaces you create and the conversations you have. And someday I'm going to go on one of your retreats. I think those look pretty freaking phenomenal. So happy to be back with you. Yeah. I would love that. I mean, we were talking before the the episode was recording that you're an empty nester now and you might have some time and space a bit free of some obligations to go and do some stuff. Retreat. Mm -hmm. I do love travel. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah. yeah. Who am I? Or like, how do you describe yourself to people when they say, Oh, you know, you're a relationship guru or you're a love expert or you're a, I don't know. What do you do? I, uh, Mark, our friend Mark Rose one time called me a vaginius when I wrote a book about sex. That was a fun one. <laughs> that sounds very Mark Rose. <laughs> I mean, that could have, I ought to, you know, I should have capitalized on that. I could have launched a whole nother thing. The vaginius. You know, I, I, I think that there's, I think the bridge between my personal life and my work life is I'm just, I'm somebody who's deeply unafraid of hard work, you know, like I, when I think about kind of how I show up as a partner and a sibling and a friend and a, you know, mama in my personal life, I think I'm really afraid of, of hard work. I think there's, I'm, I'm really unafraid of, you know, of hard work. I think I'm, I'm really quite diligent. And when I think about what I, how I show up professionally, I think that's also true. And I think I'm somebody who I, like leads with my heart, probably sometimes to a fault. You know, now that I'm the the CEO and president of AHS Global Media, this little tiny business of mine, I see. I mean, I you know, I, I see myself how I make decisions, and it is really so much more led by emotion and relationship. Um, I think that's true. You know, kind of across the board. I'm I'm just super in my feelings a lot of the time, and um, yeah, pretty persistent and dogged and endlessly, I think you and I share this, I think endlessly curious, like a forever student forever. I know that that captures you too, like nerdy, like love to synthesize across domains and put the pieces together. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was a question I had for you, which was essentially with the background context that you are a renowned expert, quote unquote. Yeah. But also I know that you're a forever learner and inquisitive human. And my question was going to be, or is like, who do you learn from? Or are there specific books, podcasts, mentors that you look up Mm -hmm. to and continually, you know, have epiphanies and insights around? Yeah. You know, I think that I've gone in chapters, like I had a really long chapter where my most treasured teachers were, and I think I, you know, because my, because I've been in psychology for 20 plus years, you know, psychologists have been my go-to teachers for sure. But I went through a chapter a while ago where, where I turned to spiritual. I loved, um, loving what is Byron Katie, you know, Wayne Dyer. Like I dove into, it was right around the time that Oprah did this, um, super soul series. And, you know, she interviewed Elizabeth Lesser and, you know, all of these sort of like more spiritual gurus were on the bridge between spirituality and psychology and relationships. And it felt almost like a little naughty because I was like not learning from, you know, the university based or, you know, psychology based teachers, but it was such, it was such a natural extension of how I love to learn. And I think when I think about sort of the folks in my field, and when I go present at a conference, I love sitting in on other people's workshops. So I could sit with Terry Real. 10,000 times and hear something else in his presentation. Esther Perel is a very like treasured teacher of mine. I rely heavily on Sue Johnson and the Gottmans, you know, the research that has come out of um, the folks who've been developing models and approaches to couples therapy. Those are my forever, you know, I think they live so like deeply in my psyche and my orientation to my work. Yeah. Are there any teachers or or authors that you have not yet met in real life that is on your kind of 
dream hit list of like, God, I'd love to see them talk or I'd love to shake their hand or because you're pretty well known now. I mean, you've done a lot of a lot of shaking hands and kissing babies. I have. There's um oh boy, you're putting me on the spot. I'm just looking up and I'm like looking at my bookshelf and I see Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong. That would be pretty, you know, pretty freaking dreamy to, you know, to just sit. I mean, she's been a, a very treasured um teacher of mine. I love, you know, I remember re- when I read Eat, Pray, Love, and I, I just so respect um Liz Gilbert's work. You know, I think that she's such a brilliant mind and big heart. I think that would be a really fun conversation. Interviewing Susan Cain was really pretty unreal a few months ago, who wrote Bittersweet, which is one of my very favorite, you know, Bittersweet is she's she's not a psychologist. So she kind of bridges these worlds of philosophy and religion. You would love that book. I see you're writing it down. Yeah, I'm writing it down. Make a note, take a memo. She's the one that wrote Quiet about the sort of revolution of introverts. And now her latest book is called Bittersweet. It's basically about how, especially the field of psychology has become so obsessed with positivity and so deeply afraid of that, that melancholy equals depression, equals mental health, equals pathology, that we have lost all of what we gain from sad music, rainy days, coziness, like that we really have kind of confounded that with depression. And then we lose this like whole aspect of our humanity, which comes from like holding the bitter and the sweet. And so I interviewed her as I was, we were saying before we started that I'm, um, uh, you know, we were emptying, we've emptied our nest in the last couple of months here. And that is, there's to me, there's been no more bittersweet journey than that, you know, my whole life. Um, so I'm so grateful for that resource and her ability to synthesize across so many domains to help me and us like hold on to the bitter and the sweet, you know, and how that's like the fullness of our humanity. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to read that book now. You're going to uh, love it. You're going to actually love it. Yeah. Going back to the empty nesting thing, meaning for those listening, like your children have fled the home to higher education or start their own lives and spread their wings. What has surprised you about that process? Hmm. Um. I don't, um, okay, I know what it is. I think what has surprised me is just like I, I couldn't, I could have anticipated sadness. I could have anticipated like missing them and feeling anxious. I could have anticipated um, some excitement around like, oh my gosh, okay, so who do Todd and I, who do my husband and I get to be now? Like a little bit of liberation. That I could have anticipated. I did not anticipate how much it would rock my sense of self. Like the first, it's a little bit better now that we're in, you know, sorry, month three of this. But right away, I was like, I actually, I don't know who I am. Like in like a really pretty profound way of like, what am I for? What's my purpose around? And it was about, it was about just how a day feels. You know, like my days for 20 plus years have been oriented around Brian and Courtney's stomachs and school schedules and sleep and wakefulness cycles and emotions. You know, I just orient like really at probably a subcortical sub, you know, like just in my bones, orient a day, a week, a month, a year around their cycles and their needs. And that's just what happens. And as a mom, as a parent, as a family, like you just orient around each other in that way. And so take them out of the equation. And it actually called up really profound things about like, how do I, around what do I, orbit and orient. It was really so disorienting. Like I, the first night we got in bed, you know, our bedrooms on this side of the house and the kids' bedrooms on that side of the house. I actually had a sense that the house was like tilting, like imbalanced, you know, it sounds so like wild, but it was just this like really kind of dizzying. And I know as a young hotshot psychologist, I would be like, these mamas out here need to keep working. You've got to have something that is your own because otherwise when you empty your nest, you're not going to know who you are. Well, I'm here to report that I kept a very active work life for all those years, you know, and built things and launched things and studied things and did not matter. Still kicked my butt. Yeah. And like you are a CEO of your business and a PhD psychotherapist. And very well-versed, much more than most, around relationships, love, and connection, and intimacy. And yet, still, a two-by-four from the universe. 
two by four from the universe. Yeah. What do you think your, what happened in your system when you flew the coop? When I left my parents' house? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember feeling just a sense of freedom. And mm-hmm. I mean, we could dive into my family system, but I was going back and forth between two homes since mm-hmm. I was six years old. Mm-hmm. So I had mm-hmm. my mom and my stepmom and my dad. So two different houses. And when I was a teenager, both of those, uh, my stepmom had twins and then my mom had a baby. And so I have three siblings that are 13 to 15 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of bopping back and forth between these two homes for, I don't know, 10 to 12 years, yeah. sort of feeling in the family, but not fully a part of the family. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then I like left and it was kind of, okay, I... I'd been moving around so frequently that uh, I just remember feeling like a sense of freedom and a sense of excitement to go and study and learn and yeah. sort of become this new person yeah. um, mm-hmm. and also feeling homesick and, um, and feeling a sense of uh, like not feeling as important as the other kids, mm-hmm. which is very reasonable because I was a grown 20 year old and there was like toddlers that needed to be fed and cared for. So it was an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so you didn't really, by the time you watched your parents and step parents really truly empty their nest, you were, I mean, they had a very full nest, like you had it out and they, their nest was still full. So you didn't, you watched them say goodbye to you and whatever that was like for them. But you also were fully aware that you were you were leaving a pretty full, pretty full nest on in both. Yeah, houses. yeah, and even perhaps projecting a sense of relief onto them of that okay, they would maybe really uh-huh, like uh-huh, that's uh-huh. one less to worry about, and <laughs> the, the house is already filled with mm-hmm. energy and chaos and errands and chores and all the rest. So yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, it it was an interesting time. Uh-huh. I, I feel for you. I appreciate the honesty too and the humility to admit publicly, like this kicked my ass. <laughs> <laughs> kicked my ass. I know. And it's still I, kicking my ass three months later. Yeah. It's interesting too how and this I think we could talk about this in terms of a lot of transitions. What it's like how other people, what I notice most of all, I think this happens around other transitions too. You tell me what it like reminds you of, is how if I were to open up to somebody about my struggle around emptying the nest, what I would so often hear back is like things like, it's not an empty nest, you're free birding. It's not, you know, but it's so happy. But what would you rather have? Your kids living in the basement? But, but, but like, it was just like, and I would have these moments where I would almost start to feel ashamed of myself. Like somehow I was doing this wrong, that to, to be struggling is to be failing at something that to everybody else, it seemed like it was obvious. But what else would you want inside? You know, all of that kind of like those platitudes and those like just difficulty. I watched people around me have difficulty just saying, huh, you're having a hard time, you know, and um, and and I think a transition can be happy, celebrated, worked for, desired, exciting and really freaking sad, you know, or really freaking confusing. So it was interesting to kind of watch people's reactions and then watch my reaction to their reactions. Yeah. What do you think causes that? I think for for me, something that just came up is a general epidemic to touch on that bittersweet idea. It seems like there's this pervasive inability or a lack of skills or resources to sit with hard feelings and sensations in ourselves and so then we're like, no, no, it's fine. Don't be sad. Mm-hmm. Sad is bad. Tears are mm-hmm. bad. Get up, buttercup. <laughs> You've yes. got this. Yeah, I think that is. I think that's a huge part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Then, I, I, don't, I think our, like our ability to just kind of offer, I think probably all I wanted was just empathy, you know? It's, and that's, I think, a hard thing. I think we're not used to that. It is uncomfortable to see somebody uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what, um, in terms of seeking that empathy, is it as easy as receiving, damn, that sounds shitty or God, that sounds hard. Mm-hmm. Like what, from a psychological background, etc. what is an effective way to show empathy to those who are 
feeling in ways that you described. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that would feel good. Like, damn, that sounds hard, you know, or yeah, just like that, that makes sense. That's understandable. You know, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of you like just, yeah, that's not, it wasn't because I certainly, I wouldn't have been, I, you know, I wouldn't have been opening up about this so that somebody could make me feel better or make me feel different. You know, that's not really, it was just sort of my attempt to be kind of honest about something that was feeling complicated, you know? So it's not, I think so often, yeah, I think, and I think, you know, we come, we come by this tendency real honestly. I think that we, we want to be helpful to the people around us. So we think that our, our hot take, you know, is going to be helpful. Maybe look at it this way, maybe look, you know, and, and that might be like that. There, there might be times where that really is helpful, but it's why I love, you know, um, it's why I love these like kind of going meta things like talking about talking. I think we can also ask somebody what, you know, what would be helpful here? Like I've got, you know, if you look at my menu of what I've got, I've got advice, I've got validation, I've got distraction, I've got ice cream. Like what would you, you know, like what would support feel like? Problem solving, yeah. empathy, ice, you know, what are the, what would you like? I think there's something really lo- lovely about that. I remember years ago reading or listening to something and realizing perhaps for the first time in my bones that like, I don't always need to fix their <laughs> stuff. And that sometimes the best thing is to just listen. And that for me was such a game changer. And as a lazy person who is uh, appreciative of efficiency, it was like, oh, I just need to listen. I, I could do that. I don't even have to try Seriously. to problem solve. Like, uh-uh. Oh, okay. That's and so then bad. as you know, you the other person talks through it or sits with it and then the storm passes mm-hmm. and then yeah. you go get ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they're like, thank you. It was so helpful. And you're like, I don't actually even know what the fuck I did, but you, you just, you held the space. Like you, you know, I think we like throw that term around like holding space, but you really do. You were holding the space by just being present and nodding and regulating your own self, you know, um, regulating your own emotions so that you don't go into problem solving or defensiveness. Certainly if it's, you know, person wanting to talk to you about you, which is, that's much harder, right? Yeah. Would you say you're, work as a therapist and as a teacher of therapists means that you are somewhat of a professional space holder. Like, mm-hmm. is that your gift or, or like what makes an excellent therapist? Perhaps that's the question or an excellent space holder, let's say for those. Yeah. I'm asking too many questions at once, but do no, you know what okay. I'm getting at? I got you. Yeah. 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 Um, I remember in grad school and I haven't gone back to look for this research, but I had a, um, my, one of my mentors, Bill Pinsoff used to say that when, when people drop out of therapy, if you ask people why they drop out of individual therapy, what they'll tell you is I didn't feel like my therapist understood me. And if you ask people why they drop out of couples therapy, they will say, I, we felt like that our couples therapist wasn't helping us. So I think there's, I think we're seeking, I think there's, there's different, you know, I think holding space in individual therapy is a little bit different than holding space in couples therapy, but in individual therapy, I do think a lot of it is, I mean, the, the biggest, you know, sort of quote unquote curative factor of any individual therapy, no matter how that therapist is practicing, the biggest thing that is the, the, the um, engine of change is the relationship. It is just like the, the relationship feeling like there's an alliance feeling like your therapist gets you feeling like your therapist cares about you. And so there's a way, like, I think it's a, just a true skill for therapists to trade cleverness for presence, because certainly the branch of therapy that I was trained in, which is like sort of Freud and Freud's descendants and sort of psychodynamic psychoanalytical approaches, they're super invested in cleverness. Like you know, um, an insight that ties the past to the present is like, ha ha, you respond to your wife this way because of your mother, you know, like these sort of like clever, heady sort of, um, you know, connections that like you just plop into a client's lap. And that's actually like much less helpful than just sitting alongside a client and just being in the messiness together, you know, with, with, with perspective, with a more regulated, you know, nervous system, et cetera, et cetera. But that idea of it is the, it is the relationship actually much more so than the intervention or the insight or the interpretation that is what helps clients change. 
Mm. And then the opposite is true somewhat for couples therapy, whereby the insights and the plans and the changes are paramount. Yeah. I think, I think in, I think the difference is in couples therapy, the therapist has to truly be a leader in the room, you know, where, where an individual therapy kind of feels like two people going for a walk together, you know, and you can sort of feel like you're pacing yourself with them and couples therapy, you will (laughs) run over and they will be like down the block around the corner, you know, like a, it's like a buck and bronco, you know, like you've got to, so that when, if a, if a client, if a couple is complaining, like we had to leave we fired our couples therapist because we didn't feel like they could help me. It's because we didn't, we felt like we were a bigger presence in the room than the therapist. We felt like we talked the therapist into, you know, like that deer in the headlights or whatever, whatever it is. So in a couples therapy, I think you really do need to like be the leader in the space. So it's holding. So anyway, it's a very long way of getting me to the answer to your question, which is I think holding space looks different. I think holding space in couples therapy has much more of a hierarchical, you know, like kind of, not not like I'm better than you, I'm stronger than you, I'm smarter than you, but I am actually like sort of holding this entire frame so that you so that I can, you know, make you safe enough that I can challenge you. Yeah. That's so interesting. I've never considered the difference between the two before. And I picture uh I mean couples therapy to me sounds like a choose your own adventure story or a you know, what's today going to be like mm-hmm. for you as the therapist. And my perception would be that certain couples would have conflict or a lot of stuff. And they might just say, hang on, let's wait till we see Alexander totally. on Thursday. <laughs> and then they enter the room and it's like, boom, lids <gasps> off, uh-huh. let's mm-hmm. fucking go. <laughs> uh, and I imagine there's some sort of whiplash that occurs occasionally. In totally. For you. totally. I think that's, you know, frankly, I think for like sometimes therapists talk about hot couples and cold couples. Like I think for some couples, what you're trying to do, like for cold couples, you're trying to turn up the heat. You're trying to help them re-engage. There's a ton of distance and a ton of like um, disengagement. And so there you're trying to turn up the heat, but certainly with a hot couple where they've got conflict that's really out of control, it's especially important for the therapist to be the leader in the room. And I sometimes will say, we're putting a moratorium on this topic until we're together again. Like you, I'm literally actually like doctor's order saying you're not to talk about this until and unless we're together. Cause for right now it's too hot. You get too dysregulated. You say that you, you end up making these like sort of side roads where you make it, you know, you're fighting about fighting. You kind of get in these like sub, sub, sub layers of it. And people say things that they, now we've got to undo that thing that you said that you only said because you were so freaking dysregulated because this topic is too hot or this you know, um, so just save it for us. So sometimes a therapist sets themselves up to be. I need like a miniature version of you on my shoulder or have in the past, certainly where I will almost, I've talked about this previously, but I will almost see the words coming out of my mouth in slow motion and being like in the movies where you're like, no, and it's too late. They're out. Like immediately realizing, oh, now we now we get to have a 30 minute conversation to get back to where we just were because I couldn't <laughs> bite my tongue for 10 fucking seconds. And I had Isn't to say that. that brutal. It's so brutal. brutal. Yeah. Yeah. It's so weird that like, it, it's a, like one of the powerful changes that happens in there, you know, that happens with our own personal growth or our relational growth is we learn when the fuck to shut up. And so that's a harder, it can be, it's harder to notice the things you don't, you know, it's kind of like weird to go to your party and be like, okay, so I need like a little bit of a celebratory party because this thing I didn't say to you, you know what I mean? Like, it's a weird thing to ask for affirmation, but I think that's right. When we bite our tongue, when we don't say the thing we could say, that is so worthy of, you know, celebration. Cause yeah, a lot of stuff we say does not need to be said. Yes. If, if we could underline and bold that mm. statement. And I, I have said things to Kendra after the fact, when the, the dust has settled, I'll, I'll say something like, oh man, I had the best little sarcastic joke that I was going to say. Oh, in good. This moment. And like, oh, good. let's mm-hmm. just, can you acknowledge that that would have been really funny for me in the moment, but definitely <laughs> not for you in the moment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, uh-huh. I think the reason for that, or perhaps one of the underlying features of something like that example is to maintain levity in relationship. And I'm curious if you could speak to some of that, because I feel like you and I also have that 
in common aside from being science dorks and perpetual learners, but the work that you do and some of your other colleagues, it seems like there's a highlight around playfulness Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. levity to actually have those hard, bittersweet conversations and those difficult emotions, et cetera, while at the same time, not losing sight of the fact that this is about love and partnership and it can be fun. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, my brain is like pinging on all these different um, like research, find- like one of the research findings that I, um, that the Gottmans shared. Um, well, I think it's not a new finding, but they have like, they developed like a two day workshop and one day is about conflict skills. And the other day is about like play skills, you know? And so they did a study where they had a set of couples do the conflict day, but not the play day. And a set of couples do the play day and not the conflict day. And they, of course, like any, you know, level-headed therapist would think that the most important day is the conflict day, because that's like, that's like what we do is help people do conflict differently. What they found was that the couples who had only the play day actually ended up far better off than the couples who only had the conflict day. And so there is like so much power in like the repair, the levity, um, the like experience, like moments of, you know, joy and silliness that we have with each other. And that's a tricky thing about like the sarcastic comment that you, you thought about saying to Kendra, but didn't. And I love that, like, if you can like put it in the parking lot and share it with her later, you know, then she could get a laugh out of it and remember that part of what she loves about you is your wit and your humor, but you're probably spot on that in a moment when she felt tense with you or misunderstood by you, the very same comment would have felt hurtful instead of funny. Like that's the, that's such the razor's edge. I think of humor is that it's so, it's like touch. It's so contextual. The same touch in one context feels delicious. And in another context feels like nails on a chalkboard, you know? So I think humor kind of functions that way too. And there are times in conflict where I'm sure that I'm sure you and Kendra benefit from like times when you're humor or her humor. I haven't met her yet, but you know, is helpful. Like it can be like a little bit of like a verbal white flag, you know? Um, and the Gottman's found this too, that healthy couples make lots of little repair attempts, even in difficult conversations, there's like a little humor or like a little sticking your tongue out or wrinkling your nose, you know, something that just kind of says like, I'm frustrated with you and I got you, you know, I'm frustrated with you and I love you. So that even the little kind of micro repair attempts in the middle of conflict can be helpful. They're just, they're just dicey and a little risky, you know? Yeah. I think just two points to that. One was in a moment of very radical honesty, my partner is, is an exceptional communicator. Hmm. And years back, I recall her turning to me and simply saying, that's not helpful right now. Mm -hmm. And that was it. I was like, okay, message received. Like I'm gonna file that away. That's good feedback. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and it was just like very neutrally said, but fierce. Yeah. Like, yeah. like kind of, I see what you're doing right now, but like, don't, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, I was helping out at Mark Grove's retreat a couple of weeks ago and Kate Horse, do you know Kate Horseman? You met her? Mm-mm, no. She's great. And she was teaching a breathwork class and Breathwork classes, if you've never done one, can get intense and heavy and there's a lot going on. And at one point she was walking through the room and she just said very simply and something to the effect of, and can we let laughter in right now? Or can and she was essentially like popping the water balloon and then the water was like kind of streams out. And sure enough, the room erupted into a little bit of giggling. And there was some laughter. And then after that moment of sort of releasing the pressure, then they dropped back into the breathing and sort of resumed what was happening. But Mm -hmm. it strikes me as somewhat analogous what you're describing there. I think you said the white flags or the periodic wrinkle or the like, hey, let's try to keep this here and I don't know, a little lighter Mm -hmm. than than it. Or could could this be lighter? Like, is this intensity required? For the full Beautiful. effect, I guess. Yeah. 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 Sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really does. It really does. I, it's right. It's the, it's like the light, right. Having that levity allows you then to go back into the heavier. Like it's the contrast of the light 
and the dark or the ease and the work. It makes me think about when I'm working with couples who are recovering from infidelity. Um, you know, it is certainly, it is absolutely the difficult conversations, the apology, the boundaries, the transparency, the processing, all of that. And it is the, like having sex again. It is the back rub. It is the giggle, you know, like those, like that is, I think it's, I think what's so hard about when, when a couple is like kind of coming through something as difficult as that, it feels like we can't, we can't be silly at a time like this. When in fact, like being silly at a time like this is part, like to be silly with somebody is to let your guard down a bit. And so trust, you know, I think trust is in part, like hearing words is helpful in rebuilding trust, but trust is pretty much about how my body feels near your body. And so giggling, right? If I'm giggling with you or laughing with you or feeling good with you, feeling experiencing pleasure with you, that's going to be like a more powerful way to, to have a sense in my body that my body is anywhere near safe, you know, near your body. Yeah. That's so interesting. This is somewhat of a tangent, but I was talking to someone the other day on a call about memes and about sharing memes on the internet. And so for context, I share a bunch of ridiculous, weird shit in my Instagram stories occasionally, and it makes me laugh and it's really fun to me. Yeah. And anyway, we were talking about this idea that humor and fun and levity can feel vulnerable because you're essentially exposing a part of yourself that is true. Mm -hmm. and you're putting it out there and you're opening yourself up to judgment and to, you know, potential negative impacts in the same way that you are with the heavy stuff. And so to your point there about couples trying to reestablish trust post infidelity, mm -hmm. it is almost a vulnerable act to make a joke or to yeah. say, Hey, God, this sucks right now. Doesn't it? Or like yeah. to, yeah. to lighten that yeah. load a little bit. Yeah, or to laugh, right? To laugh at someone's to laugh at someone's joke when that's the person that hurts you—that's really vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, hmm. do you know on that comedy? What, what was it? Comedy day or fun day that the Gottmans did? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What sorts of things did they have them do? There's exercises or improv or right? I don't know. Yeah, I don't I'm know. Um, I don't know how much it was. Right. I don't know how much it was talking about, you know, the importance of going on dates or the importance of kind of sharing dreams and visions or how much it was like actually like experiential. Yeah. That's interesting. But now I'm curious. Can I do a very rough transition to your new book? Yeah. Because you were uh, on the podcast and your publicist was like, yo, Jeremy, make sure you talk about the book. Uh, so that's not how she phrased it, but of course. And I actually have questions for you about it because I haven't read the book yet, but I did get a promo material which said, so it's called Love Every Day. Mm -hmm. And it says it will help you understand the impact of your past, get your needs met, enhance intimacy, improve communication, and address relationship problems. And I read that and was like, damn, this is the holy grail. Like you've <laughs> you've done it. It's all in one book. <laughs> so Maybe can you talk a little bit about why you wrote the book and what it actually is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a three sixty five book. It's like a one a day book. I've never written a book like this. I don't think you you did a quote book, right? Yeah, but it wasn't a daily a, one. Yeah, it like it's pretty. It was a pretty fun design to work with. I've always loved. I mean, I love books and I always have loved like a 365 or a one a day book because it just feels like a, such a nice thing for an author to do, to give you something every day for a whole year. I think, I think I love being given things. And so to be given something for every day, it's just, you know, so then to be now on the other side of it and offering something in this format is really fun. And that's, you know, it's the way I've been writing it's how I write for Instagram, you know, and this is a, this is um, basically like a translation of much of what I put on Instagram into a format that you can hold and work with, you know, versus the ethereal it's here and it's gone of an Instagram feed. And um, 
And so in that way, it is like, like just a daily dose, a daily dose. And it's, you know, that list of topics that you hit, those are all under the big umbrella of my work, which is relational self-awareness, basically giving us lots and lots and lots of opportunities to understand more about our relationship to relationships, all of the patterns and tender spots and wounds and tendencies that we bring in, right? Because it's so easy, especially in intimate relationship to get very focused on our partner is so this and not enough this and, you know, to, to kind of place problems or dynamics at our partner's feet. And so we actually need lots of opportunities to kind of keep ourselves in the ring, to understand what is my part of this dance. Cause it's all dances and cycles and patterns. And so this is a, you know, a year's worth of super gentle, super compassionate, but accountability, accountability building practices to how do you understand why you're sensitive to this within your partner, why you tend to do this when you're upset, you know, what, why you, you know, have a blind spot here. So it's like putting the past together with the present, looking at how we're socialized. So yeah, I don't know if it's a holy grail, but it definitely will give you plenty to think about and feel about and write about and hopefully talk to your, for those who are partnered and reading it, you know, inviting different kinds of conversations with your partner. Yeah. I love that the title is an affirmation as well. Love mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, I need to do that. And mm-hmm. it sort of uh, ruins that romantic westernized illusion of love, which is you meet your person and you fall in love and then you live happily ever after. And You're it's good. Mm-hmm. And like, you don't judge or have conflict and right. it's fine. And love but, means never having to say you're sorry. is that the next book title yeah no but that's like part of that myth right it's like you found your person you don't have to say you're sorry because you're just so deeply understood and therefore forgiven don't really actually need to be be accountable yeah yeah are there any other myths like that that you hear frequently that you just roll your eyes and wish you could shake the planet and okay And so, I mean, maybe even answering the question is you've created a book whereby every day you have to choose to read the information, choose to do the work, choose mm-hmm. to communicate with your person or yourself mm-hmm. and actually show up. And, it, and it's almost implicit in the structure of the book that love is a practice that you need to devote to. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's not. I think that is as you were kind of hinting at the sort of like Western romanticized myths, I think another really big one is that love is in the grand gestures and the sweeping declarations. And it's in the poem. It's in the incredible trip that, you know, you planned without me knowing it's in the rose petals in the, you know, bubble bath or whatever. Like that's what love is, is those grand things. And it's actually um, that what, what the research shows us is that it's not the sweeping gestures. It's the little, it's the little stuff every day that either builds or erodes connection. You know, it's the, the, the Gottman's talk about, you know, like small things often, like just the, the, how, like being mindful about how we raise a concern with our partner to, you know, being mindful and not say the sarcastic thing that really would be so fitting and like super witty, but you know, it's not going to be, that's, you know, that's like, that's the rose petals on the bed, right? That's the, that's the stuff that we need. It's also how we It's also how we heal from harm that was done to us or harm that we've done to other people is it's not, you know, it's like therapy. It's not like the one insight that makes your whole life make sense. It's the little kind of like one degree of shift that you make that makes a difference. Yeah. The the many, what's like the opposite of death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Maybe it's, (laughs) you know, whatever that might be of, you know an addition or a yeah. building by a thousand small actions. Oh, I love that. Good. Maybe one to share with you, a personal one, is every morning I uh, walk out to the kitchen and this mug right here that I'm holding up is on the counter and it's filled with water because the first thing that I do in the morning is I hydrate. And Kendra has developed this somewhat playful saying, which is, I made you water. And then like, we just have a giggle and I'm like, Oh, thanks so much. You're amazing. Gosh. And then I'll taste it or 
I'll be like, oh, guys, delicious today. <laughs> and then we just like, it's become like a little inside joke. It's really but cute. It takes her, you know, five seconds to yeah. fill a water gap. And yeah. it and it is something so small and seemingly insignificant. But when you zoom out, I would miss that. I do miss yeah. that when she doesn't do it. Yeah. And I've teased her of like, where's my water? How like, are you supposed to do this for yourself? Water? Yeah, right. Do you <laughs> even do you love even me? Water, yeah. <laughs> right. where, do you, where do you source that water? I don't know your recipe. You think I know how yeah. you do this? <laughs> but it is one of those examples that came to my mind immediately around those tiny little uh, things or how we've built connection and levity and love. And her doing it, I think also is an act of love. And it feels yeah. good to yeah. make my water yeah. and um, see yeah. me smile in the morning. Are there any, I mean, you've been married 25 years almost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What uh, Are there any things that you can look at as key like what are the smallest things with the highest leverage mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. you and your partner have learned or implemented yeah well I just want to say about that I think there's something really cool about that example that you just shared because there's a way in which it it maps on a little bit to cis hetero gender roles, like the woman, like quote unquote, serving the man. And I think that I, I think there's a lot of conversation right now and a lot of super duper understandable fear and concern from women around kind of over-functioning or doing so much domestic labor or emotional labor, mental labor um, mm -hmm. for their men, you know, and, and about kind of getting lost and becoming invisible the way that they've watched their moms and grandmas da -da -da, become invisible. And so I think it's a really powerful example because my because my hope is in my sense is that Kendra has unhooked her sense of like her sense of self and interdependence and agency is not like lessened by the fact that she preps your water in the morning. You know what I mean? Like it's an act of service that is not a diminishment of herself, even, even as it perhaps replicates something that, you know, has like a traditional gender vibe to it. Yeah. You know, I'm going to bring, I'm going to ask her about that. Mm -hmm. It's it's pretty cool. It's cool. Like I, I think there's, I think that we can get. I think it's one of the hallmarks, in fact, of a healthy relationship is that we can do things, even that sort of feel like they map onto gender roles in a worrisome way, but we can do them and feel proud of them rather than diminished by them. I think that's. It must speak to the way that she knows she she can give you an inch without you taking a mile. She knows that you can you can take this water from her and not make assumptions then about all the ways that you're entitled to her care, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps this is a whole separate conversation though around. So I know, for example, I've read posts or articles from women saying things like, but I want to be a stay-at-home mom yeah, or I don't want to have a job or I want to spend a lot of time mm -hmm. in the kitchen. And this is conflicting with the patriarchal systems, right. repression, sexism, all the rest of it. So um, yeah. Anyway, we could pause that. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Because it's so juicy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or if you know an expert on that, I could have them on to unpack all that. But uh, I'm curious about the things yeah. that you are like biggest bang for the buck, like the smallest things that are mm -hmm. like, this is actually a big deal, even though you wouldn't think it would be. Right. I, well, one, like sort of my version, I think of Kendra's water is I love, and this is like less, you know, um, therapists would call the water an S1, meaning it's a daily sequence. The one I'm going to share is more like an S2, meaning it's like a every month or so sequence, which is when we cut, when Todd and I have traveled or we do a road trip or go visit a kid or something. We get home and he brings my suitcase into the house and all the way upstairs. Um, I just love that. And I don't, I don't even ask him for it. I just, I love that. Um, I love that he does it. It just feels like such a <laughs> super simple gesture that um, kind of goes without saying and feels really loving to me. And um, yeah, you know, I think our, in terms of like our daily habits, we're really good about going for a walk after dinner. And I think that's just a nice, there's something, uh, we're both huge walkers. I have always, I love walking with my girlfriends. I love walking with our kids. I love walking with him, you know? And so I think that's a really good practice for us just to like, put our phones down, step away, you know, something about moving our bodies, heading in the same direction, having just easy kind of low, low effort conversation, you know, checking in about the day. 
Um, that's a really simple one that I think packs a punch. Like I think we both feel it when we haven't done it. Yeah. I've learned that too. Cause I do this walk in the Camino in Spain and I found too, there's something about not looking at each other's eyes mm-hmm. with people that allows some honesty to unfurl more yeah. easily. Agree. You find that also? Yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Less intimidating. And something about moving in the same direction physically while talking about stuff in the analytical feels powerful. Yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. And like um seeing like for a couple to have a conversation as they're walking, like you're seeing you're seeing the same thing, you know, like you're sort of seeing the same thing. Like it's sort of forces because you're looking in the same direction. It's like yeah. that, you know, like my, like whenever I'm talking about conflict, I'm always like, you have to go shoulder to shoulder looking together at the problem. Well, that's what you're doing when you're walking. So it's like the physical manifestation of how I want people to feel when there's a conflict is like, we are, we are together shoulder to shoulder. We're looking at the problem. The problem is out here. The problem isn't us. The problem isn't figuring out if it's me versus you, it's us together, you know, looking at the problems. So I think walking manifest that. Yeah. I can think of a walk that Todd and I took recently where the beginning of the walk, I was tense as hell and so frustrated with him because he had cracked a joke. He had made a joke that I found to be (laughs) highly offensive, miss, you know, misplaced, whatever. We were like, get our shoes on. Let's go the hell for a walk. And, you know, the first half of a walk, I could have just like been like, you know, I was just like so frustrated and hurt and da da da. By the end of the walk, I was like, oh my God, I love us. We're, We're okay. We've got this, you know? And it was Probably wouldn't have been the same thing if we were sitting on the couch. Something about sitting and being still that for my body, I think creates a sense of like stuckness, trappedness, you know? Yeah. It's so refreshing to hear somebody else talk about this because Kendra and I also do this. Mm. Uh, Perhaps not as intentionally as you do, but we've certainly had a lot of good conversations. And and there's something about leaving things behind too, as you kind of talk about Ooh. them, leave them behind. Yeah. And you're moving forward into this fresh space versus on the couch or in a room. It's just it's there. all sitting there. It's just <gasps> marinating in it. it. You know, as I was telling you the story, I can tell you exactly which part of the walk where I dropped my guard and I moved from angry to under like I can I can tell you exactly where that happened. Right. So it does. It kind of like it's like a little um like a timestamp almost. Yeah. Where you like put the bag down and put the anger down. Or... Totally. Totally. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So this book you wrote, there's one page a day. Yep. And do you offer invitations or challenges or actions for people to do? Or is it just like information? Like here's a page about conflict resolution. Mm-hmm, or mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Do you have people go for walks or like what's the... Mm-hmm. It, not every, I would say most, but not all of the entries end with, you know, sort of an action step, or at least um, like, I love a sentence completion. You know, I feel most understood when dot, 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 you know, what I want my partner to remember is dot, dot, dot. So there's sentence completions throughout the book, or um, I call them like relational self-awareness questions. So questions that you could ask yourself or journal off of. Um, but they're very often questions that you can then bring to a conversation with your partner. But not everyone, not every, not every entry has a to-do or a to write or to reflect. Sometimes it's just like a here, you know, we've turned the kaleidoscope to this point, and I'm gonna write something for you that's about, you know, this one kind of micro slice of the topic of conflict or the topic of, you know, healing from the past. Yeah. And so people could easily implement it into a daily ritual in the morning or before bed and like get the book, read a page, give it some thought. Yeah. But they don't have to. Yeah. And they can do it. I mean, certainly my gosh, you can do it every day for a year, but there's also some of them, I think like, kind of like, you know, if, if one like hits you really intensely, then you work with that one for a week, you know, or you put it down and come back in a week. It's not, you don't have to finish the book in a year. It is, you know, there's an April 24th for every April 24th we have going forward, you know, to infinity. So it doesn't, it's not like a, you don't have to start it anytime or finish it anytime. And in fact, we, um, my team and I color coded all of the dates, um, according to like nine different themes. So if the entry for today is about sex and you're not really wanting to do that work today, you can go and flip through and find one that's about, you know, stages of relationship development and work with that. Um, you also can treat it like a little, like an Oracle deck, you know, or a tarot deck and just open the book to any old page and just see what the universe wants to send you on 
that day. So there's really no, there's, I want people to feel a ton of permission um, with it because you'll have it forever. And it's a lot. Um, somebody, I was on NPR talking about it and the woman who was interviewing me, Jen, Jen White was like, I feel like this is a reference book. And I was like, huh, it could be a reference book. I can see that. It's pretty freaking comprehensive. As I said in the beginning, I'm a lady who's unafraid of hard work. So it's like 400 yeah. and something, something pages, you know? Yeah. And even the description, you know, get your needs met, intimacy, communication. <laughs> it's one of those things though, if you start to try to talk about relationships, there's so many parts and pieces. And mm -hmm. as you know, it's like, you kind of have to talk about all this stuff because you need to know about all this stuff, mm -hmm. right? You I can't so. not talk about sex. You can't not talk about communication. It's like, yeah. yeah, well, drat. I think so too. I think so too. There's, there are topics. Like I always think about the music and the lyrics, like the, the, the lyrics are like the topics, like, you know, transition to marriage, like dating, like, like sort of, you know, like housework, like sex. That's the, that's the lyrics, you know, like the topics. And then there's like the music, like the sort of how we fight, how we tend to the emotions that arise in us during a conversation, you know, like the sort of like the processes. So I think there's, yeah, I find myself like often because I think there's my work is about the world of relationships. There's like a lot of like, okay, locating. Right. So where are we right now? Cause you're right. It's, it's, there's a lot to look at and a lot of different places to stand to learn a bit more. Mm -hmm. I think this is a really good place for people to just dive in right? Because mm -hmm. there's so much, it, it seems like a helpful resource. It's like, just mm -hmm. choose one page and read one page today. Just do yep. that. It's not gonna be the whole thing, but it's going to be a thing. And I know there's, yeah, there's things that I have to, re you know, things that I revisit again and again and again, and, you know, little bits that I've got to work with over and over. So yeah. yeah, that's what, that's what I hope people will get from it. Yeah. I'm sure you're familiar. Like I'll be working with clients and hear myself say something. And then a little voice inside is like, Oh, really? That's what they need to hear? That's what they should do? And it's like, <laughs> ah, dang. Shit. <laughs> Shit. Um, all right. Yeah, well, I do all the time, I'll watch my clients do something, and I was like, oh, they did that really well. I probably ought to do that with Todd someone <laughs> sometime. Yeah. You know? Wow. Yeah. Um, just, I guess, last question would be, is, it, is there anything you're working on now or looking forward to at the moment? Hmm. Exciting thing in the in the world of in the Alexander Solomon. I think it's right. I think that it is. Um, I think it's a period of just like catching my breath a little bit. And I know I I love the beginning of a new project. And I'm not quite. I've got a few different. My team and I are playing with like a few different ideas of what we might want to create next or dive into next. Um, one thing that's very immediate is I'm working on a piece and writing an article for my favorite magazine, Psychotherapy Networker, which is our big um, mental health like magazine. They have a conference, actually Psychotherapy Networker and their publishing arm is what published the company that published this book, Love Every Day. But I did a talk for them a couple of months ago uh, about couples and work, like how the ways in which our careers you know, kind of holding the tension between ambition and intimacy, our desire to succeed at work and our desire to love and be loved and how these can be synergistic in the best of times and like completely in tension at the worst of times. So I'm working on an article. Um, yeah. So that's I'm the immediate next thing. And also that's, that's juicy. Oh, it's so fun. It's so fun. And I love just how nerdy you are when you said, oh, my favorite magazine. I pictured, I, I did not expect you to say psychotherapy networker or whatever the time was. <laughs> Cosmo. <laughs> yeah, or just, I don't know, time or Rolling Stone yeah. or whatever. But like, yeah. oh, it's, it's perfect. Um, mm -hmm. And I know you've got Instagram accounts, the podcast, the books. I'll put links in the show notes. But is there any specific thing that you want to highlight where people can find you? No, any, any and all those, I mean, the website, dralexandersolomon.com has got, it's a really easy way to find everything from right, podcasts, social media, books, e-courses, all of it. So it's all there. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming by. It's always a blast to talk to you. You're always, I really you're like people like the one we do drop in, I'm reminded of like how much I like you and how, how great you are. So thanks for all you do and, and all you are. I feel the same way about you, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me on. I hope you have a good rest of your day. She is the best. And as mentioned, her book, Love Every Day, 
the new one. It's out now. You can buy that everywhere. She's got the podcast called Reimagining Love. She's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. There is no reason for you not to get into her world. I put links in the show notes for everything. You have no excuse to not track her down and slurp as much wisdom and knowledge and advice as you possibly can. And as for me, you can find me everywhere at Long Distance Love Bombs. Send me a message. If you have some guests that you want me to interview and have on the podcast, please let me know. But thank you for being here. I appreciate you listening to my voice and all of these amazing, incredible guests that are trying to make kindness cool and compassion commonplace. Please do share the podcast. Give it a five-star review. Share it on the Instagram. Tag your friends. Say, Mom, Mailman, the pound operator, the guy at the grocery store. Hey, have you heard this podcast? It will change your life. Anyway, I adore you. Thanks for being here, and I will talk to you soon.